This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and evidence for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. There you are. Uh, good to see you. And you. Welcome uh, back. I know, just, just back on Friday, so just bright and perky from jet lag, but other than that. I, I really do appreciate that you've uh, agreed to do this. You've, you've done a lot of things and talked to a lot of people. I, I, I watched today a bit of the one that you did uh, at Melbourne University for the Centre for... Uh, and that, that, that was terrific. So in, in the light of a, converse, a comment that you made, I'm wearing black. We'll make a start. Um, I'll, I'll start by acknowledgement of country and then I'll um, just give a, an introduction to you. Studiosity acknowledges the traditional Indigenous custodians of the land throughout Australia and all the lands where we work and recognises their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to Elders past and present. Good afternoon, Jane. Thank you for making time to talk to us. Let me just give a brief overview of what I know about you. And uh, we've known each other for a long time when we were both Deputy Vice-Chancellors, you at Curtin and me at Macquarie. That's right. um, what people might not know about you is that you were born in Zambia no. and that you were educated at Wits University um, and that you also uh, did your PhD at Cardiff. And uh, you have been made a... Um, uh, you've been given an honorary doctorate from Cardiff and also made an honorary fellow, I think, at, at Cardiff. Yep. So um, it's nice to have one's alma mater recognised. You've um, had quite a lot of experience as vice-chancellors, probably more than you ever an anticipated, but best known for the ten nine years you spent at Deakin, where you engaged in real transformative work and, and reinvented the heart and soul of Deakin and really started to question what uh, online learning and distant learning was about and you know, Deacon is now back at the forefront of that. You had the unexpected invitation to be interim deputy vice, interim vice chancellor at two West Australian universities. And uh, my understanding of what you did at West Australia was you did a quick cleanup job in five months. Um, and I was also delighted to hear when you were thinking, asked the question about um, who were people that you admired and that you mentioned the name Faye Gale. I think Faye Gale has been one of the most uh, under-acknowledged women leaders our country has ever had. And she, being the first woman vice-chancellor of a place like UWA, uh, at UWA, would have been full of all sorts of challenges. And then, of course, you came in and um, were the interim vice-chancellor at, at um, Murdoch as well. So you, you understand the West Australian situation. I also noticed that you are a board member of... Um, of uh, Navitas and of course Navitas uh, many of us have had uh, relationships and partnerships with Navitas so you 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 are a constant talker uh, on the media you are very visible and your wisdom and uh, your experiences will be um, investigated in our podcast today oh, so as as you know, um, I asked you to bring an object, and being a contrarian, you brought you you found two objects. So, can you can you tell me uh, what the two objects are, and tell me the story behind them? In yes. particular, how they represent you as an educator and your life as as a senior educator and leader. 
Yeah, so so it all goes back to, you know, being first generation, you know, working class family. Um, Mum and dad both left the UK, Ireland. My father was Irish Catholic. My mother from Liverpool straight after the war in their early, early 20s. Neither of them went past, you know, the, the year of school where you can get out. Um, my mother failed her um, equivalent, whatever it was, O-levels. Um, and so to her, you know, then they came to South Africa and the four of us, the four children, three girls and a boy were just ruthlessly educated. And my mother now is one of the most, was, she, she died two years ago, 97, was probably the most educated woman I know, self-taught, read widely, taught herself Spanish, never went to Spain, but taught herself Spanish. You know, people say, oh, have you got a university degree? You know, education and university are not the same thing. Some people use the, you know, I, you, me, we went to university, the, you know, the lucky few and got educated and had a brilliant social life, brilliant professional life. Others just got educated. My mother um, never worked outside the home until after my father had died and then did a charity job um, doing all sorts of things for two charities. Um, and you think, and yet when you talk to her, you know, you, there was no aspect of English literature that she did not know about. And so education for me is a really vexed issue. It's not about universities, it's about curiosity, about your absolute steeliness to understand something and then to become expert. That's what education's about. And we were just lucky. We went to a highly social place where we could meet other men and women like ourselves and, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll is why we went to university. The education, fortunately, happened as well. And, um, but for some people, that's not the case. They didn't have any of the fun. They just got educated. And, you know, we've got to respect that and remember that. And I often think we don't, we don't remember that as well as we should. Many of the clever people in this world did not have our privileges. Mm -hmm. And so the objects are? So here's my object. I'm just standing up to turn it around and put it in front of you. My mother bought this for me. And it's really, really, oh, God, you know, I'm really bad at this sort of thing. But here we go. No, I have to lift it up. So it's, it's the, the learner. And you see the learner, the book, and the teacher. And my mother bought this for me years ago when I just became a PVC. It's really, really heavy, not expensive, but she was just so thrilled that I'd got to a level where I was going to inform education rather than just be educated. I was a curtain then, and it weighs a ton. And then my children, when I became a vice chancellor, gave me this little you know, disc thing that you put in the side of the computer because that's how they remember me, sitting in front of a computer, screaming because my stupid little um, toggle wouldn't work. So it sits on here, and this has all the work I did at Deakin and all the work I did at Curtin, just downloaded onto it. I'll never take it off, sitting there. So this is so your life. My life. You're, you're, I'm your life. I'm in a, in a my life has been spent either in a university, working in a university, or talking about education. So you, you use the word curiosity. And one of the concerns that I've had over a number of years now is universities as they're organised and programmes as they're delivered really work against students being curious. What, what are your thoughts on curiosity and how we can nurture curiosity mm -hmm. in higher education? So 
so you know if I was asked what is the one thing that I'm disappointed about it's the cost of higher education that for so many people you know I have a daughter-in-law staying with me at the moment who has a debt this big yeah no money in the family clever enough got into dentistry and she'll pay back that debt for years now she's a dentist so she's going to pay it back in number of years but quicker but you think of how many people have to work and work and work and study forget curiosity what do I have to do to pass this unit it becomes the toss-up unless you you know you're wealthy and so that's the thing I find the most difficult about curiosity everyone I think has a capacity to be curious many of the students we meet that I meet now here in WA you know I mentor three or four different people all of whom wrestling with debt time poor should be educating themselves and they're working you know they've got you know one young woman of Chinese extraction doing three jobs three jobs while she puts herself through uni and they're crappy jobs these aren't jobs where you learn other than to be nice to people mm -hmm. you know um one's a cleaning job and I think she does fast food somewhere and you think you know how can you you know so curiosity really matters how can we as the educators and voters get back to a system where you allow enable people who wish to be educated go to university stay in school to be curious and to do things my son's a school teacher they have no time for curiosity he has a list which he has to tick off to say i've done these things with my year 12 class mm -hmm. you know he'd like to you know at the moment, you know, there's been so much talk about what's been happening in America and the Brexit thing. He'd love to talk about Brexit with his history students and the implications of that for Europe. 20 minutes, you know, because mm. there's no time in the curriculum because he has to get these things done because they have a year 12 exam. So we are, we have to be quite careful. Our generation who were curious, mm -hmm. um, certainly, you know, I had a very blessed um, higher education because I basically wandered around where I wanted to be and did things I wanted um, I don't think the the current generations are afforded that opportunity I also worry that they no longer think about the opportunity of being curious and looking at things because they're in this track you know I've got to get this then I've got to do that then I've got to buy a house then I've got to pay a mortgage not that our generation was better, but we didn't have those pressures. I certainly had no idea what a mortgage was for a very, very long time. Now, I lived in a reasonably not well-to-do family, so we never owned anything. So, of course, you wouldn't have those pressures. But, you know, certainly this, this, this generation, there's much more focus on owning a house than there mm -hmm. is on being curious and seeing the world. Yeah. Oh, you know, we're not going to travel for two years because we want to pay down our mortgage. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's limiting, isn't it? So that, that's me being very, you know, upper middle class, you know, highly overeducated woman saying, here's how the world should be. It isn't how the world is. Mm. And, how, and I don't think it is how it should be. But I think what we've missed by re reducing curiosity is also opportunity. We don't give people opportunity to choose which end or where they want to be. If you want to go off and go to school, get uni, go to work and live that's fine but there must be others who want to be over here what do we do about them so so we're, we've sort of brushed quickly over your undergraduate experience but your postgraduate experience also having travel having sort of done study in South Africa and then going to Wales 
what was your postgraduate experience like and and what what did it what did it provide you with that you've taken with you for the rest of your life so just to step back to my undergraduate experience so i lived in a small gold mining town cottonville um the well one of the biggest gold mines ever um working class town went to the local school I was deputy head girl. The head girl was the sporting athletes of the of the school. Won all the medals in running. Didn't get in the trick. I was the deputy head girl. I went so I went to Vits. Um, the only one in my school who went to Vits. Um, my parents had never been to university. They drove me up to and I got a scholarship. <laughs> they drove me up to Sunnyside at Vits, and Vits is a really wealthy, wealthy, wealthy exceptionally good university was also the one that introduced the first black person ever to an undergraduate degree um, and my parents drove me there they dropped me off outside Sunnyside they gave me 15 rand which in equivalent pounds would be seven pounds 50 um, and said goodbye and went home to Cottonville which was about 100 miles away I suppose something I can't remember now and that was my and everybody in Sunnyside were pretty much privately educated, except there were about five of us who were not privately educated. I had three good dresses. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is not going to go well. And it didn't, for a little while, it didn't go so well. But then I was clever, you know, and I got, I got a first. At the end of my first year, I got four, you know, four ones or whatever you call it, ones in our case. And the rest is history. People paid attention. And you know, I got I got another scholarship and academic the staff like me, Dr. Hislop, who was um, the zoologist, took me under her wing, showed me a few things, told me what not to do, and I was okay, but I was quite clever and I worked really, you know, I worked. I got you know, got went through first class honors. I worked, you know, it wasn't because I was, you know, one of these natural geniuses, I wasn't. So my undergraduate years were my formative years. You know, I got there and I remember going home and saying to my dad, you have no idea how clever these people are and how rich they are. And, um, and it was quite, it must have been so insulting for him and my mother because both of them were self-educated and both did, you know, my mother particularly spoke Spanish for God's sake. She taught herself Spanish. And um, so I was quite patronizing in those days. Mm. Postgraduate was a blast for me. I loved postgraduate. I got, you know, went, got a, did my, wrote up my honors project as a master's in South Africa. On the basis of that, got a scholarship at Cardiff. Jerome, my husband, we, were, we weren't married at that point. Then got a, a postdoc at International Rice Research, which was also at Cardiff. And I was umming and eyeing about, initially I was up at the University of Wales Medical School. And then I transferred down into the city, into the university, into zoology, but to do biochemistry. And um, we had the most fantastic, I had a fantastic postgraduate time. It was really good fun. My, my PhD enabled me to do a postdoc in Cardiff in parasitology, which led me to all the other things I did. Um, so, you know, quite good fun, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, for, a fortunate life, I think, is what I had. Mm-hmm. So these provided the foundations for you as, as an educator. And mm-hmm. particularly going to Vits, you you've got sort of uh, you in, in that 
um, podcast. So it's always politicised. So yeah. people will often say I'm over-political. I'm very political. I see everything politically. I see everything with colour. And yeah, people say, oh, I never see colour. You're not, you're not looking at people then. One of the most self-identifying factors of all of us is the colour of our skin and the colour of our eyes. And I see it all the time. And, you know, I so and we've never come to grips with that. Now I'm very white. Um, my three closest friends, two of them are Indian and one is African. And I think that's the nature of where I grew up. And, you know, I, I also feel have a principled view on these things. And we need to, you know, some of those things haven't been, we still don't take care of them well enough, I don't think. So you talked previously in, in other podcasts I've seen about the importance of values and, and as, as a leader, you've been values driven, but as an educator, you certainly have been values driven. And that uh, brief description of your entry into the, the world of privilege at WITS speaks to that sort of uh, misalignment of values. But, but what's driven you as an educator and a leader in, in all of your leadership roles? You know, I think your formative years matter. When I went, you know, I had these three dresses and the girl I shared a room with, very nice girl, Diane, only child. And so she had most of my wardrobe as well as her own wardrobe because she just had more clothes than me. And, you know, you walked around, I had no money, so I had to work. Um, and I got a job quite early. And then I moved out of Sunnyside. I realised that Sunnyside was paralysingly expensive because the scholarship just paid for you to be there, then you have to live. So I moved out and um, met you know, some very nice people, had shared a flat, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm always being politicized. And in South Africa, the, the, the difference between if you have and if you don't is not just color-based, but it's mostly color-based. I had a lot relative to almost everybody else. And that's informed my view ever since. You know, and then when I left South Africa to go to Wales to do my PhD, I remember saying to my mother, look, apartheid will be over in five years and I'll come home and I'll work here. 20 years later, you know, and by then, you know, I'm married, we'd had two children. I made both my children sit at home on the Sunday when Nelson Mandela came out of jail and he was supposed to come out at, I can't remember, like two o'clock Sunday our time or whatever it was. And he didn't come and he didn't, and they were beside themselves with irritation, wanting to go, you know, off for a walk into the park. And then finally he walked out of jail with Winnie in his hand up. What a day. I remember that day as if it was yesterday. You know, and you realize the world will change now for South Africans. And it did. For mm -hmm. some of them, it went, you know, a lot of white South Africans will tell you the country's gone to shit. No, it hasn't. Look at how many black people are now in universities getting educated and everybody voted. They all got the vote. That's not shit. That's just the future. So, you know, so, so, so that's my lens that I see things through. Are we being fair? Because I've seen unfairness and it's shocking. Um, are we, you know, are we helping each other? Because if you don't, you're going to, you know, you'll need it eventually. You'll need someone to help you. So that's the lens I take through and particularly in education. You know, when you think, I don't know about you, but now think of my privilege and the advantages I have now and the accolades I have. Yeah, the Ondoka Cardiff. That was my mother. That was my school teachers, you know, in a crappy little school in Cartonville who said, you can do this, you can do the maths. Here, let me give you an extra lesson. Otherwise, I'd never have had that, you know. 
So I do think we should look around, value what we've got, and then just give it back a bit and always acknowledge some of the stuff. You know, I used to be embarrassed when people asked me where I came from. I don't anymore because I see some of my strength is because I understand what can happen if you don't do anything. So you've, throughout your career, but also in your education decisions, you've actually taken advantage of opportunities as they've emerged. So can oh, you give absolutely. me, in terms of um, higher education, you know, your, your, your foray into higher education, as particular as a vice-chancellor, what opportunities did you take advantage of that you saw, I mean, for some things it could have been immediate benefit, but at others it was much more long-term? So, so I went to Curtin, you know, Curtin, um, you know, it was quite interesting, big university, very commercial, a lot of international students. And of course, I'd been an international student going to the UK. So I had quite a lot of empathy. And, you know, Jeanette Hackett, Lance Toomey, most particularly was the vice chancellor, who I think was one of the fine, another forgotten vice chancellor alongside Faye. You know, I was very fortunate. I knew Faye and I knew Lance. And then I had Jeanette, who was a very tough vice chancellor. But gosh, she taught me about frugality, about being commercial and about international. That's what she taught me, you know, that there were, you know, and I suddenly remembered, yeah, I'm one of those. I'm an international student in the UK, Margaret. And so, and then when you start to work with, and so I started to work with students and realized that, you know, the future was very different to the one that I'd expected. I mean, I'd expected when I went to, to Curtin just to carry on doing the kind of, you know, being an administrator, of course I'd be an administrator, but then I'd just go back to the lab and do my research. And I gave up my research then and became a full-time. Now, when I became the PVC, I just did, that's what I did. I stopped doing my research um, because it was interesting. And, you know, if you can get another extra 10 people educated, now that's something to be proud of, but to do it fairly and with value. And all this nonsense, you know, you know, making sure that we treated everybody the same, you know, people used to think I overdid that a bit. But I think that is important, you know, you know, welcoming our international students, making sure that they get the English lesson and being honest with them. Your English isn't good enough. You need to go to classes, you know, instead of pretending, oh, they just can't speak English. What are we going to do? We're going to give them English. We've, we've accepted them. And somebody once said to me, the only person who ever said to me, that I had bad English. And then when I went and I listened and she we sent her to one of the English classes at Curtin, I think it was, yeah, definitely it was at Curtin. And they played it back to her and she couldn't understand herself. And then she, she wrote to me, I still got the letter somewhere and said, you know, thank you so much. You were the only one who was honest enough to say, go and get an English lesson. And I think, you know, Judith, one of the things we often are so nice that we don't address the bleeding obvious as educators. You need to get your maths up. You need to be able to learn to communicate effectively in English because you're in an English speaking country. Um, if you want to get on in Australia, that's not to be xenophobic. I mean, most of these people speak four languages, but if you're working in Australia, probably your English needs to go up two levels so that you can fit in. And fitting in is what we all want to do eventually. So let's let's talk a bit about the student experience then, because that that was one of the the great platforms that you yeah. you wanted to reinvigorate uh, both at Curtin, but also but also at yeah. uh, at Deakin as well. So so what's what's happened over the years in terms of the student experience? And given that you you laid out very clearly this sort of um, wallpaper of debt, uh, <laughs> this sort of 
lack of curiosity. Um, what's the student absence experience? Of curiosity. So not lack. I think people are curious, but they it's absent because they're busy over here. There's no lying around, you know, in the gardens. For a few there is. What shall we do today? Oh, I wonder. Or I think I'll, you know, I did this, I did philosophy because I got bored in zoology. I thought, oh, I wonder what, and some a friend was doing philosophy. And I thought, oh, I'll go along. So I did the whole philosophy course, wrote the exam, hadn't, you know, hadn't enrolled. And I remember the registrar, it was one of my first crosses with the registrar saying, but you haven't enrolled, we can't give you the mark. And I thought, well, that's okay, I'm not going to be a philosopher, I just went, you know, and I think a lot, and two other people, we, there were four or five of us who just went because it was a great lecturer. So we went, and so we wrote the exam, because if you sat down in the row, you got the exam, and, you know, whereas these days you can't do any of that, you know, you're not getting in if you don't have a student number, etc. So... So I think absence of curiosity and off, but it's more busy. And how do we encourage, you know, my son's a school teacher, encourage your kids to be curious. That's the most important thing. I've allowed, you know, I've allowed him to be very curious. He did an engineering arts degree. You know, it cost this much money. He used up every single hex dollar he had, but that's what he wanted to do. So go and do it, you know enable the next lot to do the same I think so curiosity is if for if we want to be the innovative nation we are we have to find a way to enable the clever people the curious people to do what they need to do otherwise there'll be no innovation that's why America is exceptional mm -hmm. it's because they ignore everything that the exceptionality just comes up and you get off these people doing the most astounding things because they can and there's this bandwidth if you show potential. We tend not to do the same here to the same extent. We're much more tramlined, I think. Or and why, why do you think that is? Probably, I mean, absence of money, we don't have the huge benefaction and scholarships that the, you know, the big universities in America have. And just having been there and meeting a couple of people, you know, it, they are quite except they are quite exceptional. They have lots, of, they have all the rubbish we have as well and all the bureaucracy. My sister, who works at New York, I mean, oh, have to deal with the registrar today. I was one of those people. <laughs> oh, well, you know what I mean. No. <laughs> but, you know, just a professor, you know, ranting on about, you know, money or something. So we, I, I think we, we don't have scale. They have scale. I'm sure they're really bad universities in America. We just tend not to visit them. Um, you know, and I think, but I think we need to do more. Glenn Davis, I remember once said, we were a very flat system. We don't have the colleges, mm. the universities, but we also don't have that, those incredible ones right at the top, you know, the Harvards and Yale that do some quite exceptional stuff, you know, all over. So if, if you could change something for students, what, what would, and, and you were back in, you know, being, being a vice chancellor or somebody that had resources could, could, who could make decisions, what would you change to really enhance that experience of students? Yeah, I think many, many more scholarships to reduce their debt so that they had time to think about doing honours, to do it properly, and to get the full benefit of what the you know the good universities of Australia they are you know most of them are very good um, can give you, but. These days, a lot of people don't have that time. They spend less time on their university work than they do on getting to work, doing the job and getting back again. So that school, that debt, 
And I, you know, and you can tell many, many students, look, you can hex, you, know, you hex it all and you leave it. But for many, they don't. They, they feel morally obliged to get rid of it. And some of those are the clever value-based ones. You know, this is money the state gave me. I'm going to give it all back as soon as I can. That was never the original intent of the hex, of course. And so I think the, the encumbrance of debt on students and the, the way it then forces them to work to have a living um, so that they can feed themselves and do the like is, is quite a one of our big blockers. I think it stops some of the exceptionality we could have unless you're fortunate enough to be recognised and get a scholarship. Certainly at Deakin, you know, there was some... I remember... Anyway, at Deakin, there's a scholarship system and at least, I can't remember, more than half the students wrote and said, the reason I got a distinction, the reason this is the first time I've ever got a high distinction is because I didn't have to work because I had the scholarship. Thank you. It matters. If you don't have to work as much, you can spend more time on your education You get, and you get more out of it. Now, high distinction you know, often means that you've explored it wider, that you've gone deeper, that you've thought about things. Shouldn't everybody get wider, higher, deeper? Now, not everyone's going to get a high distinction, but more will get high distinctions or get distinctions or pass if they don't have to spend so much time shoveling out fast food or whatever they do to make a dollar to pay their, their housing or whatever it is they need to do. That's the great level that I think frustrates. If I could do one thing... In Australia, I would reduce the cost of higher education and I would stop all those private schools, make everyone get that public education, the, the Swedes and the Norwegians, you know, all the Danes, they were so sensible over there. And then at university, get people to actually do what they've come to do, which is to get educated. So just changing direction. So I'm very like left on all of this, you know. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm finding it wonderfully there. refreshing. Um, <laughs> You've, you've had some sort of distance now from both um, being within a university and, you know, you do, you, you, I understand you still are engaged in universities, but what are you seeing and what are you seeing the future of higher education as being like? And how could you reimagine it? Yeah, you've already indicated you scholarships. So the pandemic was such a body blow, wasn't it? You know, you think, you know, I was talking uh, when I got my on dock at Cardiff, you know, and I was talking to the, the you know, they had the ducks. We all had dinner and I was talking to a few of them. And, you know, they'd all been through three years of the British system, three years of university. And not one of them had been to a party. Uh, they missed their school balls when they finished school. No parties. One girl had done her entire three-year degree sitting on her bed in a very small bedroom because she had to go home because the residence is closed in your residence is closed everywhere and so her mother gave her the broom cupboard and that's where she did her entire degree and how was it look it was really you know the work was interesting but it was very lonely and then I think about my 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 undergraduate year and I think oh my god you know sex drugs and rock and roll doesn't come close to her miserable life you know <laughs> So that's what I think we need to do. We need to give back. We need to look at what is the cost of not educating the next generation rather than how much should they pay to get educated. That would be my first thing too. And I think the new prime minister gets some of that. I think he gets it, single parent, you know, mother, housing. He gets that, that not everybody's equal. And then we need to give some freedom to those who come to university and make them use curiosity-driven 
education to some extent. Now, how do we get our university, you know, probably any vice chancellor listens have just fallen off their chair going, oh my God, we've got no money. There's always money. This is an incredibly wealthy country if you go around the world for three months. You know, we could do, we could do better about being exceptional with our education, particularly at that high level, which generates innovation, new ideas and creates wealth you know, the, the virtuous circle, which is effectively what the Americans do. You know, they do it, you know, they do it very well in the innovative sense. A lot of the country is completely deprived, but that's a separate matter um, because of the, you know, capitalism is an interesting ideology that they live, they swear by. We don't. So imagine you've got a, an audience with Jason Clare. <laughs> And you've got you've got an opportunity to make one intervention. It what would that be? be? I I got to Australia and Hex had gone to what was it, Judith? Like two hundred dollars, maybe. I can't remember. And there's a huge row. And I come from South Africa, and I was on the UWA campus. Um, hadn't I, Jerome is a UWA um, alum, and so we'd gone to meet some people. And they all fell on him. He'd been away for two years. They, oh, I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks, Jerome, do you want a beer? So I wandered around the campus and got into this. And there were all these students demonstrating about Hex. And I think it was $200. And in South Africa, it's private, universities are private. You're scholarshiped or you're paying huge amounts of money. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, what country is this where everybody who gets the right quals at school and go to university and we did at the beginning you know that whole thing of free education and it was 200 and one of the student leaders who stood up I don't know who it was um, said $200 is the thin end of the wedge in years to come we'll be paying thousands and thousands and so it has come and now some people are paying over $100,000 for a degree which is a barrier now, I think if I have a saying talking to Jason Clare, I'm not saying you have to make it free, but you've got to make it much more accessible and balance curiosity-driven education against the need to work just to pay rent. And we haven't got that right. And it's not because they're privileged, it's because we need people who are clever, who are innovative, and who are going to do those exceptional things that you see in other, you know, this whining on that we're never innovative enough in Australia. Well, how could we possibly be? Most, most students are working their little socks off just to get to get graduated. And then they usually go and do the innovation somewhere else. Um, so we need, to, I think we could do better in how we value the curiosity-driven innovation and ideas and how we instill that into the next generation without imposing incredible blockers on them without and you know without ignoring everybody else i'm not saying you know we, you know this whole thing about privilege becomes the problem particularly white privilege and how we deal with that um, is a problem so i i sit on the socialist side of the agenda i do believe that we could do more to make sure that everyone everyone rises together we need to make sure that more kids you know schools are better run um, our teachers are better funded. You know, we have great teachers. Um, what are we doing about making sure that they all feel proud and privileged and pleased with what they do so the next generation can come to university? But right now, you know, look at, I don't know about you, but the trend at Deakin of privately educated students to get all the great places and 
the scholarship system. I actually set up a scholarship when I left and I made specific rules on it. You had to, you had to come out of a publicly fund, a government school. You couldn't, um, you know, if you'd be, if you had any kind of advantage, I ignored those, not because they weren't deserving, because there's another group over here get, get ignored their whole life. And, um, you know, and over the last four years, I think we've had 25 or 35, maybe more now going through, and all of them have done well from very ordinary coming to, because most of them went to ordinary schools, worked while they were there or lived in miserable conditions. Um, you can make a difference and we need to make a bigger difference than we do. The Americans do it better because of their huge benefaction they have. We don't have benefactions, so we have to, as leaders, value-driven leaders who believe in what we do, give scholarships. Um, so the last, the, last, get educated. the last question I'd like to ask you is, um, what advice would you give to your younger self? <laughs> uh, probably to be less overtly political, because I think people always saw me as a risk, because I've always said what I think, and perhaps that was an error. I remember when I went on UA, Vice Chancellor said to me, Jane, you know, if you just toned it down a bit, you could chair UA. And I thought, well, I don't want to do that. You know, I'm not that interested. I was busy arguing with the minister at the time, who was, you know, who was actually a very, very good minister and was very generous to Deacon, I have to say, very generous, as it turned out, because it was a good idea. But, you know, I think in, I would be less political and keep more of my ridiculous ideas to myself. Might but have been the, better for some. But, but <laughs> the world would be a much lesser place. Deakin would have been a lesser university. So I'm glad that that advice will not be taken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too late, she cried. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Jane, look, thank you for uh, spending this uh, 30, 35 minutes or so with, with me this afternoon. Well, and, thank um, you for asking me, you know. Um, that's very very nice of you. I come to you from Noongar Wachak land and um, you know, over here we don't get as much attention as um, as you do on t'other side. If I, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, Judith, you know, you live on the Eastern Seaboard and you do believe you're in the centre of the universe. You live in WA and you know the only time people speak to you is when they forget there's a three-hour time difference and you you know you pick up the phone at four o'clock in the morning is everything okay yeah it's just four o'clock oh sorry sorry put the phone down well who the hell was it <laughs> well so, yeah. jane it's been it's been wonderful catching up again and, and i still remember a conversation that you jim um barbara oh, and i had Bob. at clavelli all those years ago and uh, i think i think that and then that time, that those years that we were on the um, Office of Learning and Teaching um, Advisory Board, they were great years. So Another example, you know, at the OTL. You remember it had teeth then. You remember the changes, the things we did, the yeah. ideas, the imagination, the excitement. Yeah. Well, let's, let's hope that, that that returns. That's what in we a have to aspire form. to. That's what we need to, you know, that's what I'm banging on about here, you know, is more innovation, more ideas, teaching and learning matters. Well, I'll come to that party. <laughs> <laughs> nice to talk to you, Judith. Nice to talk to you too. Thanks, Jane. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next Students First Symposium. 
an open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education. Studiosity.com slash students first.